Bitcoin fixes the money, the Beef Initiative fixes the food and nutrition. Step into some new awareness that incorporates some much needed food intelligence into your life. This is Texas Slim with Texas Slim's vision. Tonight we have Justin Trammell of Tear Bloom Farms up here in the Texas Panhandle. Let's dive in. You know, there's not much you can do whenever you go from 70 degree weather to 10 degree weather and then back well, and forth. Well, that's the Ano Estacado, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it is, but I don't remember a winter this windy, I know, you know, it. like we, we have this kind of wind in April, not December and January. You know, that, that's always you know, my birthdays in May and I was growing up. I, I absolutely hated the wind <laughs> and I could not stand it. And I always looked towards my birthday because school was getting out and we were close to summer and the wind quit blowing. So I was, I was pretty happy yep. whenever that happened. And you're right. These winters aren't this windy in, uh, in West Texas, Panhandle, West Texas, when that wind, well, down Midland, Odessa, of course, too, but the wind blows here and you, you get that sky was, it's dirt. So you know, we kind of we kind of yep. experienced what our grandparents did during the the Great Depression in the Dust Bowl. So, I always like to reflect. Well, and it's funny, you know, because if you look at how much moisture we got this year, you know, we got a fair amount of moisture. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is it shut off in August, and then we got all you know, we got that late heat, and then we got all that mm-hmm. wind. And so, despite the fact that we actually got a fair amount of moisture this year, it's all gone. Yeah, it's it's. It's something interesting if you talk to other people from other places because it that kind of thing doesn't happen in other places. People don't understand that you can you we don't have a lot of humidity here, and if we get that type of wind, we're in a drought. You know, it it just sucks it all out of the atmosphere. It's gone. It's 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 depleted. (laughs) It's not hanging out, and you know that's 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 the harshness of you know the Panhandle. And I was writing a Substack today, and I talked about the Comanches, you know, and how tough they were. And the Texas Rangers basically. The only way they knew they were going to defeat the Comanche was to learn how to fight the Comanche. Well, the Comanche, this is where they hung out. This is, you know, this is not easy territory. <laughs> and there were reasons that they yeah. hung out here. You know, it kind of speaks to you what you just went through. You are now uh, licensed in the state of Texas to basically process beef. So tell us a little about about what happened. I'll interject where we can, but you tell your story and just yep. go for it, Justin. Okay. Well, uh, you know, for those of y'all that have listened, uh, you know that we've been in the process of opening a processing facility for uh, your domestic hooved animals. So we actually started this process. Uh, Dad and I were looking, uh, talking about it, and, uh, you know, this time – well, it's been a year and a half, over a year and a half now between us whenever we first started the conversation and first started looking into all the regulations and, you know, trying to get all the the uh, financing situated and and everything that went along with that because the financing took a, a decent amount of time to figure out. And, of course, so did the regulation side of it. But uh, it's definitely been a journey. It's It's nice that we actually have beef hanging in the freezer of course the ones we did you know friday are for personal use because we don't have that paperwork in just yet but we were able to get our hands dirty and actually 
get into it. And tomorrow we're going to be cutting on a cow and, and doing some practicing and, and making some ground beef and, and pulling out a few other cuts. So looking, really looking forward to that. So, so you're going to, I can finally get my beef from you then I can, I can quit saying, Hey, yeah, I've got a local <laughs> producer or supplier uh, and uh, now I can really brag about it and start talking. I've been holding back about saying anything about you because we've been going through this process of getting those inspections and going through the state process and all of the work that you've had to do. Like you said, year and a half, two years, you know, that's what you, you, you say now, but we all know it's a lot longer than that. I mean, you guys have been thinking about this for years. How does it feel to be, to be licensed now? I mean, is, did it, cause you went through a bad process I'm, I'm, here. I mean, you had to do inspection twice. Yeah. So it's got to feel great. Well, and so, yeah, it definitely is. It's still kind of surreal almost, you know, honestly, because we don't, uh, we're, we're still waiting on the paperwork, the official paperwork to get in. And then, uh, we, we do have to get an official stamp made, which takes a couple of weeks. And honestly, it's going to take the, the, uh, DSHS a couple of weeks to get their ducks in a row as far as getting us a, an inspector and that kind of thing. But in the meantime, we'll be able to start doing other people's animals because we'll be able to do custom exempt as soon as we get that paperwork in. And then once we get that other stuff, we'll be able to do the full state side of things. But it, uh, you know, we'll actually be able to get rolling, which is huge because we just, since we started the inspection process, you know, we, we've been out close to 80 days delayed now just on the inspection, you know, with a building that's been a hundred percent done and ready to go. So during that time, you, you, you had, you had a herd, you had, what'd you have about 80, hundred head? How much did you have? I can't remember. One time. Well, yeah, we've got, um, before, before we had to sell a load to kind of, uh, be able to afford to pay feed bills. Basically, uh, we had about, I think we had over a hundred head that were ready to go. And then we had to sell off, uh, 35. Uh, so took a, took a decent hit on that just to, you know, make things work. But, uh, I guess I can just go into, uh, how we set our stuff up and then what it, what the inspection process was like if you want me to and, yeah. and give a good solid background because you know you know some things so i feel like that if, if we don't do that we're going to be jumping around sure. and, and uh maybe losing yeah, the narrative I think a little. That, yeah i think this <laughs> i think this cast because we can we'll probably be able to talk a long time what i want to do is kind of go through the process let's go through the inspection process because that's probably one of the most stressful things you've ever gone through in your life and you know what what is associated with yep. associated with that you know i I'm going to bring out in my conversations, but just let's start from the beginning of right before your first inspection, take us through the last, you know, however long that took. Yeah. Well, so, you know, we got our building done and I got all of my HSAP stuff done, which is basically the paperwork side of you have to make a health a food safety plan basically. And so, you know, I had to do a, a course to do that. And then I had to make that plan and um, those plans are, are really interesting, but we, we put a lot of really solid work into this and we did a lot of research and, you know, we were very intentional about how we've designed this facility, the way that it flows, uh, the way that even where we're going to be, able, where we have a certain equip, equipment placed and even in the way that we chose to build the freezers and the coolers where we actually have 
a few compartmentalized freezers and coolers to better be able to make sure that we are doing a good job on our food safety uh, side of things. So all that to say, we really put in a lot of effort and a lot of forethought and um, a lot of legwork to try and make sure that we designed the best facility we possibly could without getting into the crazy, you know, $3 million type quotes that pretty much anybody before we got this thing up, everybody that we talked to is like, oh yeah, if you're looking at a, at a basic processing facility, you know, you're talking two and a half, three million, maybe a $5 million facility. And something like that is just not attainable uh, for most people, uh, especially not producers. You know, that's just, that is way, way over the top kind of money whenever you're talking about anything that even a few producers could cobble together um, to, you know, sure. make that work. So, uh, you know, we, we got all that set up and we had our first inspection around the first week of December. And so there's, there was probably a lot of things at work here and, and, you know, I'm not really going to make a bunch of guesses about what it was. Um, but I do know for a fact, after the second inspection, um, the, the, the facility that we have is really not like anything that they've permitted before. Uh, we we got that from one of the well the higher up that actually came to the second inspection I think kind of to clean some things up. Um, he my dad asked him how many facilities like ours they had ever permitted and he said really, really? none. What was what is the differentiation so, of that? Um, I I think a lot of it is that this is such a small facility. It's also a producer controlled facility. So it's not even like we're just butchers getting into this. We're producers that are raising the animals, growing the animals, and then looking for a way to process the animals in a very safe and efficient manner so that we can deliver an extremely high quality product to the end user, to people. Um, and, and there's just really, you know, there's people who do bits and pieces of this but not really that whole self-contained kind of thing. Um, and so that's really because the, I, I, at least the facilities that I know of that have been permitted recently, most of them, if not all of them, get in what's called boxed beef. They, they may do other, you know, they may do some slaughter where they do other people's animals and that kind of stuff. But um, a lot of them, if they're selling any kind of meat, they get in what's called box beef, which is, beef that comes in the big primal cuts sure. you know the quarters or or anything like that or the primal cuts and they get it from generally the bigger um, processors and then they then they do their cuts they do their ribeyes and casey strips and you know roast and stew meat and everything else and then they turn around and sell that to people which is you know that's that's fine if if you want that kind of business model but we're not going to be doing any of that period right. at our facility so that's a completely different kind of setup yeah because everything that comes through our facility is something that we've raised or that has been raised by other people right and when you say business model i guess we can kind of clarify let's let's let everybody know you know if you if they haven't heard the podcast before and maybe you know get people familiar again let's let's say how many you're going to do you know how much you're going to harvest every week and what your goals are and kind of like get a size and you know who you're going to try to feed who's yep. your target audience all that kind of stuff 
So our facility max, if we were just running full out, is only a 30 head a week facility. Uh, really, you know, if we can do our, our break even is actually eight animals a week and that's employing four to six people full time, which is pretty good. And then really we're looking at somewhere between 15 to 20 head a week, um, especially to start with. You know, I'm sure we will get to the 30 because we already uh, the the booking list we have. We could already be just so covered up. We wouldn't even know what to do with ourselves. But that's that's what we're looking at. So whenever you, you, you look at these other facilities that are doing hundreds a day, uh, that's you know, that's not even a drop in the bucket. But because of that, you know, we're going to be able to do our own animals that we've been raising locally or other people's animals that have been raised locally. And we're going to be able to turn around and get that product, that meat product into local people's hands. So really most of my clientele, you know, is 60 miles or less away from me. And that's kind of the way I'd like to keep it. Not that I'm necessarily opposed to shipping, but, uh, it's it's just a lot better if you're talking about this kind of very localized food production. Well, I mean, that's what we've always started from the beginning. You're kind of you and I having this conversation when we first met is, you know, you brought up you brought up a good point. So like a lot of our food ships in, you know, to the panhandle where we live, you know, from over 100 miles away. And that's that's the problem. We're not close enough to food. So you're solving the problem that you and I basically first had a discussion about. And, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty big to be able to kind of paint a picture, paint a roadmap of what you and I have, you know, been talking about, what we want to get out there to the public and to, you know, the state of Texas for one, but, you know, also across the United States is that you and I, you know, our goals and our dreams is let's get let's get everybody out there to let's get at least one processing facility probably your size it can be a little bit bigger but in each county across the state of texas and you know whenever you called me the other day or talked to me and said that you know you passed your inspection you know that that made me realize that what we what we've been discussing what you've been doing for a lifetime and especially the last two years is it's a possibility now there's a there's a precedence mm -hmm. and you're kind of that precedence because you are different from the other processors as the head and process processor said. And so this is a new business model that will be coming. And I think a lot of people are about to start paying attention because you're not, you didn't have to pay $3 million for that processing center. You didn't have to pay 2.5 million right. for it. You don't really you even have to say the price, but you did it, you did it less and you did it for a lot less. <clears throat> so as far as that being kind of that guiding light right now that people are going to be looking at you, Justin and saying, Hey, how do we do this? Um, you know, I, I want to bring all this knowledge, you know, through the beef initiative, you and I have talked about that. So as far as mm -hmm. saying that, um, what is your, we'll come back to the processing, but I want people to, to understand is like, how are we going to transfer this information, this, this intelligence, because what you've gone through is a process that nobody knows about and they want that information right. and you want to share that information because you want a processing facility in each County across the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, yes. So um, actually, 
to even segue into that, the uh, the big boss that came, um, he actually gave a speech before the second inspection, and he mentioned how crucial facilities like this would be that are the producer controlled or owned and that he would like for ours to be a model for the state. So that was pretty big coming from that That's higher really up. <laughs> when you say higher um, up yeah, in the so state, very, let's, very let's, huge. Uh, like, let's, when you say high up in the state, like a, the, the head inspector in the state of Texas for processing centers? Uh, yeah, he's in the, in the DSHS uh, hierarchy. He's way up there. He's like third or fourth in, in that hierarchy. Okay. So, um, it's, it's, it's he, whatever, you know, he has a lot of weight to the things that he says. Um, I think he's really a reason that we passed, but we did a lot of things to get this to his sure. attention as well. Um, and in between. But uh, as far as getting the information out to people, you know, I'm actually going to be putting basically a how to manual together um, as far as the different regulations that apply, at least as far as Texas goes. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that I could help somebody out of the state because I just don't sure. know the regulations behind, you know, when to rechange that. But I think even if you're in a different state, this would at least give you some sort of an idea of where to go. But I'm going to put that manual together and um, I'm going to, I haven't figured out exactly how I want to do it yet, but basically I want to have a couple of different sections. The first section, I want to just lay out the different regulations that you have to be aware of, the diff different regulatory bodies that you have to talk to. Uh, the different uh, certifications that you are going to have to get, like a HACCP certification, uh, because so much of just that kind of basic information is so incredibly hard to find. And that's part of the reason it took us this long is because it's not even that you can just call Austin and say, hey, I want to open a processing facility this size. Can you tell me who I need to talk to? Uh there's not just one entity that you can you can do that because they'll say, well, you know, uh, you need to talk to DSHS or you need to talk to TCAQ or you need to talk to your local health department or and, and there's just it took a long time to track all that down. So even just a one page, these are the different regulatory bodies you have to talk to and the different regulations that apply to you. That would be huge. But on top of that. I'm also going to put together, you know, of course, the layout for our plant, um, a basic reasoning as to why we designed the plant like we did, the flow, the size, uh, where we feel kind of the sweet spot is as far as not being too small, but also not being too big, you know, for a lot of reasons between both cash flow and uh, your food safety as far as that goes um, and, and put that together. And, and that would include things like, you know, more of the blueprints, more of the specs as far as the what it takes to get an aging cooler and the correct um, uh, condensers and voltage and everything else that went into that. And then I think the last section would just be about the HACCP. And really, uh, you know, if, if I'm putting this together as a manual that I'm selling as a complete package, it's going to include our HACCP plan that we're going to be using. Um, and and that would set you up where if you were HACCP certified, you wouldn't have to really do hardly any legwork unless you wanted to change a process, which is fine. That's, that's sure. what that's for. 
but that would that would if you, the manual itself if you get the whole manual it would basically be if you follow that manual you're going to have more or less a turnkey operation that is going to pass inspection that you could get rolled out very quickly yeah. <clears throat> you're going to be connecting a lot of dots that even the, in the government they don't know that needs connected or they don't care and so you're basically creating a roadmap for people like you said it, it's not out of the box but it's pretty dang close and it's closer than it's ever been in the state of texas by doing that you're setting a precedence as far as you know people that because there's a lot of investors out there you've heard from several i've heard of quite a few people just waiting for this to begin to happen on this level so whenever you say kind of the manual and everything well you and i talked as far as you know putting that together and how we're going to work together um do you have some people that are coming at you pretty hard right now saying hey i want to do exactly what you just did uh yeah i mean we've already got uh, a, a guy down in east texas like i said he's already bought a piece of property and i think he's already in the process of getting another two or three and he said he wants about 10 of these um and then i've got a couple other people in north texas and south texas that are pretty serious about it so as soon as you know we i can get this thing out of course i i kind of want to be open for about a month or two and get any of the kinks that we have worked out you know and, and make sure that everything flows like it needs to because i definitely don't want to be putting out a manual that's kind of a halfway thing but even just getting past your first inspection that gets you way way farther than anything else that's out there so it uh it would definitely make this very doable and very possible and not require that you spend a year and a half or two years like we did, where it took three of us full time doing different things from construction to the, the, you know, financing and that kind of stuff to the, all the regulatory stuff that I was personally sure. on. So uh, I think if I got that out, it would make a huge difference and make it where you could put these up basically as quick as you could build the facility you you know you'd be ready to have them out get your inspection and get on because at this point now that we've passed they can't just turn around and fail a, a carbon copy exactly. facility i mean they could but they're not going to have a lot of standing if well, they and I, I think that's a good point i think that that's what people need to understand that the we're about to change the game here i think in a way that maybe the state's not prepared for because further talks with you is that I see that, you know, we, we do, cause you have, you reach out to politicians, you, you reach out to the lawmakers, you do that very well. And now that we're going to say, Hey, these processing centers are coming your way, Mr. Representative of the state of Texas, you need to make sure that you guys have enough people staff to be able to inspect all these processing centers. That's where I want to get to. Yeah. And if we, yep, because that would, if, if we really put in as many as I think that people want to, it's really, they're already scrambling to try to even find an inspector for our facility, much less if all of a sudden 10 of these go up in the next year and a half or two years or right. more. So let's talk about the inspection itself. Uh, you don't have to talk about the first inspection. You can do that, you know, as much as you want, maybe what they said. And mm -hmm. then, 
I want to know and I want you to tell everybody kind of the process and the protocol y'all followed after that first inspection, as far as your diligence, as far as putting the time into, uh, as far as the inspection itself. I mean, you guys had people there, representatives there. Talk, tell everybody kind of how you followed that. Well, the first inspection, so the, you know, whenever I, I first started talking about this, I, I, I wanted to bring up how kind of off the wall this facility was, because I think that was probably a lot of it. Uh, there, there seems to have been some other odd things going on, but again, um, it's kind of a moot point uh, at this point, because even, well, and even at that point, it was kind of a moot point, because regardless of what other things were going on, we had to make it work. Uh, but I, so that first inspection was very odd because we had five inspectors come to a facility. Our facility is 40 by 80. We had five inspectors, uh, two of which I actually knew, uh, because one of them was my inspector from my, uh, exempt poultry, uh, facility that I have. And then another is another on-the-ground inspector. And whenever I say on-the-ground inspector, I mean like inspectors that actually spend time in facilities basically every single day um, and do, you know, daily kind of working with plants. Uh, I recognized him because I'd met him a couple of times before because my inspector Haas had brought him out. And uh, so it was good to see them because, you know, Haas had seen this facility several times and and uh, he'd, he'd been very helpful in just trying to help guide me on some of the, you know, big places that people have issues with. And, and so he really was a very helpful resource to try and, and make this, this facility as good as we could make it. Um, but the other three, we didn't know. Um, and really, as far as that first inspection went, it was really, really hostile is probably about the best word for it, um, which caught me and my dad off guard we knew we'd sure knew that it could be tough and a tough inspection is one thing but a hostile an openly hostile inspection is a completely different thing um and really with that first inspection it was a whole lot of really really nitpicky things which again is fine. And I understand that there could be sort of an unspoken policy that, hey, whenever a facility first applies, they do need to have some pressure on them because it is probably in their best interest to make sure that a facility is willing to work with them in case something bad does happen and that facility needs to make changes. So between that kind of mindset and the fact that this was uh, completely off the wall as far as they're concerned. I could, you know, after the, the initial inspection, I could kind of be like, okay, I could, I could see maybe where this came from. But like I said, that first inspection was extremely hostile, um, extremely unhelpful because the things that they did, the few things that they did actually point out, they weren't willing to really tell us how to fix especially whenever it came to my HACCP plan. Because my HACCP plan, you know, I had never written one before. I just had taken the course. And then I tried to put it together as best I could with both my science background. And like I said, I took that course and I, I tried to do as much due diligence as I could. But again, I've never written one of those. And those are a very complicated um, document. It's not just like you throw a few things together 
and say, hey, I, I want to do this to be safe. You have to come up with your methods. You have to find supporting documentation for your methods. You have to um, go through every little thing and talk about where there could ever possibly be any kind of um, contamination from anything not even just biological, you were talking chemical and physical contamination. So it's a pretty intense document. Like I said, not really unfounded. The um, the idea behind it, I feel like, is a really good thing. But whenever you're talking about a facility our size, uh, a lot of the things that it's made to address just don't happen because of the quantity that we're going to be talking about. Um, you know, whenever you're talking about doing several hundred or over a thousand animals in a day, that's a completely different thing because you're, you're working extremely fast. Whenever you're talking about doing 15 to 20 animals a week, if you break down 20 animals a week, you're only cutting out five animals a day. That's an incredibly different scope. And that's a good so, but like like I said, it, it's it's well it's well based, but it's just it's it's hard to apply to a, a yeah. And, and that's a thing. point that I've heard several times. And not to interrupt, we'll get back to that. But that's a big issue as far as your size of processor, even bigger than yours, and the the big guides, the the big four, the big three, that you, they they do so much more volume on a daily basis. And so really the state is looking at these rules and regulations and inspections and it's almost apples and oranges and the smaller guy is paying the price mm. for that. So you you are able to right. overcome that because of your good planning. So I'll let you continue. But I wanted to bring that out because that is an issue that basically I think is being addressed and it will be addressed more from a, a rules and regulations, state regulations, laws, bill, whatever it is. Right. And so, you know, in, in our in this first inspection, it was also odd because Haas and the other on the ground inspector that, like I said, those two inspectors see facilities every single day. They work with processors every single day. They just raved about how good our facility was, about how well it was set up, about how good the rail system was, about how good the aging cooler was set up, about how good the cutting room was set up, about how good the walls, the, the material that's called Trescore that we use for our walls. They just had only just amazing glowing recommendations to say about it. The other three only had negative things to say about it. So you had a very confusing dichotomy going on where it was inspectors that see facilities all the time saying all these great things. And then these other three that at the time we didn't really know their background because they didn't introduce themselves. They didn't give credentials whenever they showed up. Um, so we didn't really, really know they, they didn't have good things to say. So it was a very confusing thing to have that dichotomy at the same time. Um, and then actually that dichotomy led to a extremely um, engaged shouting argument between Haas and one of those other three um, during that inspection. So again, that was a very noticeable dichotomy that was really hard to wrap your mind around whenever you're trying to go through an extremely 
intense inspection. Yeah. Well, it'd be disheartening for one and um, confusing. In, well, it's, it's, it creates a lot of fear. It creates a lot of, you know, projection of like what, what is going on here. This is your livelihood <laughs> pretty much. And mm-hmm. so, to be in that type of situation, I don't think people understand because it, it, there's an air to everything. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the line and whenever you use the word, hostile i think sometimes you know whenever we're dealing with the stuff that you're dealing with there's a lot of there's a lot of uh history there's a lot of ignorance involved as far as how the how things work on all sides but there's also you know there's corruption there's a lot of things that get uncovered and by going out and pioneering the way you are you are uncovering a lot of stuff and so y'all get through that first inspection you have two sides of inspectors that are basically certified done all the training and they cannot agree on anything seems a little partial do you want to talk about why or do you want to just go into the second inspection well like i said there's there's a whole lot of things that you could you could think on and you could say well it might be this and Mm -hmm. it might be that um because there's you know working in in well food legislation since 2019 like i have i've i am a bit jaded because i've seen a lot of bad actors on that field um so it definitely made me very suspicious but as i said before um all of that stuff was almost a moot point because it was nothing you could prove. And so it was one, it was a mental roadblock that we just kind of had to push to the side because you could go down that rabbit hole all day long and you could drive yourself crazy, but that was not going to be productive. What was going to be productive is figuring out, okay, this next inspection is coming. How do we make this work in our favor? What, what do we need to be prepared for? How do we go on the attack here? And I, by attack, I don't mean like sure. punch them in the well, face when they walk to the door. I mean, like, do as good of a job and have and put the pressure on them. Yeah, focus on the solution, not the issues. And, you know, the issues being what was right. in the past. This is about taking control and basically getting toe-to-toe with the problem and saying this is what we're going to do. When y'all did that, what let's right. talk about how y'all approached that as far as, you know, you, you have the attitude, you have the, the motivation here. <laughs> You're pretty driven. We're going to do right. this different this time. So talk about those changes. Well, like you said, this this was our this is our livelihood. Like we've we've invested kind of everything we have in this. So this is a this was a sink or swim kind of thing. Um, if they were expecting somebody that was just going to roll over, that wasn't something that we even had an option to sure. do, really. Um, so I don't know if they really realize that or not, but it's not like we were a big multi-million dollar corporation that could just hang out for half a year. Uh, we're a small family business and we had to make this thing work. So uh, one of the best things that I did is whenever we finally got that report, which they said we would get that evening and it was delayed from Thursday until Monday and we only got it because we emailed the main office in Austin and he finally got it to us. Um, honestly, the main report was actually very helpful to us because it was done in a way that was 
really quite unprofessional. It had misspelled words, which doesn't seem like it should be that big of a deal, but that's an official state document. Um, it also had all sorts of really odd requirements on what they were claiming was wrong. And then it also had some things on that report that were completely false and things that were not even addressed. Like one of the reasons that we failed in our kill room is because he claimed that our knife sterilizer was inoperable. He never, whenever he was here, never said anything, never asked about it. All we would have had to have done was put water in it and plug it in. But that was on the official report. And of course, that's something very easy for us to refute. But there were several things like that that were very easy for us to refute. And then there were other things that he had on there as a requirement that we had, we knew were way over the top. Like he wanted us to have an entirely separate cooler for the inedible barrels until they were picked up. I've been to quite a few processing facilities in the state and nobody has a cooler for inedibles. They have barrels that Valley Protein comes and picks up and they put the inedibles. And for people that don't know, the inedibles are like the guts and the innards and stuff that people that you don't want to be eating and stuff that you shouldn't eat. Um, but they take that and they render that down and, and make other usable products out of it. But no facility, even Eads down the road from us, doesn't have that. All they do is they drag those barrels out and set them behind the building until they're picked up. <laughs> and on that report, well, two things with that report. First of all, the report actually did not agree with itself. So that report had two pages. And the first page was a list of the different areas that you could pass or fail. And it showed if you passed or failed in them. The second page was a more detailed, uh, same list, but more detailed list. And it, if you failed, it said what you failed on. Those two lists did not agree with one another. So on the first page, we would pass in one, in one category. And on the second page in that same category, we would fail. So those two didn't match up. But luckily on the second page as well, it also had the actual specific code, the, the law, that it was supposed to be quoting. And so we could look up that law and see, okay, inedible cooler, where does it say in the code that we have to have a cooler for the inedibles? And so I did a lot of legwork. I went through line by line in that report, looked up the code that he was referencing, and tried to find exactly why he would be saying that. And pretty much everything that seemed like it was um, way over the top, I, I constructed an email and I laid out line by line the things that seemed over the top. And I would say, okay, you mentioned this code, 9 CFR 3.12 or whatever the code would be. And I would say, you said that we needed this in edible cooler, but nowhere in the code am I finding that that's a requirement. Can you please direct me specifically in the code where this is a requirement, that way I can better understand why and how 
and so we can make this work. And so basically on every single one of those, I think it had 10 or 12 points, we got him to back off. But I had to do a lot of self-advocacy with that. If I had just rolled over, we'd have spent another 12 weeks and probably another $150,000 that we didn't need to. It's a good point. You know, and it just kind of goes to show you that the, the, the room for whatever it is that happened is, you know, in how much does that happen out there, you know, to people in how, how much does that really affect people's livelihoods? Like it almost affects you guys, you know, the, the just the stress, the emotional stress. And of course, like you said, an, an extra 150,000, because if you're not a self advocate in this business, nobody's going to come save you. So you better know your stuff and you better be able to be prepared to counterpunch in a way that, that you have always done to get where you are right now. Because a lot of times, you know, with our conversations, you've pretty much convinced me, you know, from, from state rules, regulations, even into advocacy for the farmer rancher. I mean, you've built a network as an independent animal producer in the state of Texas and that's how you have to approach all of this, especially moving forward. You have to be that self-advocate. And if you're not, you're not going to make it. Yep. Yes, for sure. And, and as you brought up, you know, that network that I built, it really came in clutch because actually the issues that I've had previously with our local health department ended up with me building a relationship with the director of that department even though it is a little bit, you know, tense sometimes. But he also knows that I know my stuff now. And he actually came in to help me with the wastewater because the wastewater was one of the things that they failed us on. But he actually took it into his own hands and emailed that inspector directly and laid out both why I was following the TCQ guidelines and that his department had come out and inspected our sewer system for our toilet. Um, that was two things that they didn't like. And actually he, like I said, took it into his own uh, hands and actually emailed him directly. And he's somebody that we had to have a very serious conversation. Let's with talk about that because this is, this is actually helping people across the United States for sure. Just the approach with the local, you know, the local health department, let's say it. And that was, that was in a, that's out of, uh, that was Potter County, correct? Amarillo? Yeah, well, Amarillo has a what's called a bi-county okay. health commission because Amarillo is in two counties, and then that also means that they have jurisdiction over Canyon gotcha. as well. So that relationship was kind of testy from way back when, but there's a story here, and you brought it up, is there, what helped you now in this current situation is that you had to go through that that low time preference basically type of relationship with somebody that you knew you were going to have to deal with in the future and that you guys butted heads and if it wasn't for you once again being a self-advocate none of this would have came to fruition even back with that kind of conflict that you had with the health department Right. And, and, you know, it's, it, it's also the fact that our local group of producers came together um, because really it came down to a lot of misunderstandings because even if somebody is in a position like the head of the health department, that doesn't necessarily, you got to remember how many laws they're dealing with and how many different 
department sections and everything else. They don't, just because they're head of a, that huge department doesn't mean that they know all the laws by heart. And so a lot of what it came down to is that for one, the laws are not easy to understand, even for somebody in that position. Two, like I said, they don't necessarily focus on our little section right. of laws, our food laws. Um, and so it took us taking him aside and saying, well, what you're saying here is not correct. Here's what the state law says. And then we did have to have a meeting between the health department and the mayor and the city council and a couple other people and bring in our producers and just say, hey, this is what's going on. You know, we're not trying to break the law here. We're not. And that's actually the opposite of what we're trying to do. Um, we're doing this in goodwill. We want to work with you guys. And here's what we found. And, and so we were able to, through that, of course, that was a very tense process. But through that process, we've been able to basically establish a good, what I would say is healthy um, relationship with the local right. health and with having that relationship with the health department now, once I'm going to go back to the first of the conversation, uh, precedence and once precedences are set on the local level in the community level, then that's whenever you can really make waves into changes that, you know, that we're trying to make as far as building communities, localized food, decentralized food you have to start really locally first and then it starts spreading out from there. Um, as far as your relationship and your network, I think a lot of people out there that you know, are in different places, let's say West Virginia or Oregon or, you know, Ohio, Maryland, wherever they are, let's talk about your network as far as, you know, the Ogallala Commons group, uh, the relationship with uh, the state of Texas, the relationship with the Farm and uh, Ranch Freedom Alliance. There's a lot of relationships that you have that I think people need to understand because they need to go get involved with it. If they're listening to this podcast, you need to listen to what Justin's about to say and do some research and understand how you can either emulate or join the same groups or look in the direction of what you formed as far as being a very good um, network of people that group together have a lot of power. Right. So first of all, if you're a local food producer and you don't get involved in your local and state legislation and, and that kind of thing, um, you are going to be pushed around because the codes are not written for what we're doing. Really, that's what it boils down to. And it's really easy as a producer to feel like that you're being personally attacked. And you could be, but the thing is, is what you do, you have all your emotion tied up in what you do. And so anytime that you experience a roadblock like that, you you're going to have to remember that this is not necessarily, and oftentimes it's not personal. It's very easy for your emotions to get involved, but you have to remember to pull those back. And so you either have two choices as a local producer. You can either do nothing and be passive. And then whenever a bad food law comes down the pipe that kills your business, you don't, I mean, you have no recourse. You have no one to blame but yourself. Or you can choose to get involved 
you can choose to be aware of what's going on in your state, in your locale. You can choose to learn your food laws. And you can choose to be an advocate for those. Because really, on the state levels, it doesn't take that many people to make a change. You know, if you're talking about the federal level with Congress, um, it takes lots of people calling and emailing and showing up in person um, to make a change. At least in Texas, I'm, again, I'm not familiar with other states, but at least in Texas, 10 people calling a single representative's office is often enough to change a no to yes or vice versa. If 10 people show up in person to that office, and all want to talk to him about the same thing, it's about enough to give every single one of those staffers a, a heart attack. <laughs> so it doesn't take that many people to make a very significant change because the thing is, is in the state legislators, those representatives are representatives of their little regions. And generally they don't have a whole lot of input. So you can make a change and it's definitely worth your time but it's one of those things that you have to be aware of what's going on. It's true. I mean, you have to be involved, like we said. And as far as you, who did you use? Who did you reach out on the second inspection uh, as far as in Austin? Um, and, and as far as you already mm -hmm. spoke of, you know, local uh, with the health department and, of course, your local inspectors that you already knew. Let's talk about who you reached out to Austin from res representatives. Uh, you know, if you reached out to any media or what was the what what what, what transpired? Well, whenever you're in a situation like this, um, you know, there's kind of. Um, Escalation levels is maybe a good word for it that you want to go by. Generally, with this kind of stuff, you don't want to go right to the media. The media is kind of a last-ditch effort um, because the thing is, is you don't ever want to come off as somebody who's just complaining or somebody who's complaining because you failed an inspection because those kind of things happen and complaining about them is not the right thing to be doing. You want to come off as somebody who is taking control, trying to figure out what is going on and asking good questions. Like, why were there five inspectors at this in inspection? Why did there seem to be that dichotomy? Why were there these very unprofessional and confusing parts of the report? So through my connections with both the Ogallala Commons and FARFA, um, I actually reached out through someone I know from the OC to the main secretary of the Ag Commission. And so I constructed an email that laid out what had happened in that first inspection and made it clear that we were not complaining that we failed, that we understand that happens, that's part of the process, but we were concerned about the other things that went on during that inspection. And so it took a few days, but that secretary got back to me and she said, well, we don't have any jurisdiction over that, but we have passed your email on to the higher ups of the appropriate department, which is DSHS. So that was one of the major things we did. My dad also called that main office and asked to speak to the boss of the inspector that came that first time. 
And again, he made sure that he was not complaining. He made sure he was not angry and yelling, you know, despite all the emotions that were going on. He only asked good questions. And he drove home the point that we are a small family owned business. We can't afford to be put off 70 plus days. We don't have the financial reserves. We already, you know, we lost a hired hand that we had ready to go in that process. So he was, again, we were hammering home th only the things that you could without a doubt, more or less prove, and that without a doubt were things that were affecting the process. Um, I also reached out again to the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, Judith McGreary, and I got her advice on things because she is actually a lawyer. She's, you know, she got the TDA to back down on FISMA stuff, which is, is pretty impressive. Um, but I reached out to her because through the group of local producers I have, I came up with a plan. So I was going to go ahead and record the inspection and I wasn't going to hide it. And, and I didn't on the second inspection I had, we had a camera there and I said, Hey guys, I'm recording this inspection so that I can better understand the process. I'm not trying to spy on you or catch you in any, you know, foul act or anything like that. And it is completely legal, both because we are on private property and Texas is actually a single consent um, state. So as long as one party says it's okay in, in the recording, you could actually even do it in secret. But Judith said not to do it in secret because then if you ever did have to submit it, it looks a little fishy sure. if you do it in secret. So we had that ready to go. We also had um, other producers here. So it wasn't even necessarily that they really knew anything, but whenever on that second inspection, whenever they arrived, let's see, there had been two, three, uh, four, five, six. There were eight people in here ready to go. And it wasn't that we were trying to gang up on them. In fact, most people didn't even talk, but we just had people ready to go. Cause that first inspection, it was just me and my dad. And with five inspectors, they were kind of able to wander around and link up with each other and whisper to each other and do all this stuff. So we wanted to avoid that happening. And we were ready to record from a second perspective as well. Right. Um, so with Judith, you know, she, she verified to me that that is legal, that nothing about them being governmental employees makes it illegal to do that. And that it was actually best to be upfront and open about it. And, um, you know, I also told her that I was going to bring up that I need to know what is being written down. That way we can avoid anything that could have been resolved like the knife sterilizer issue. Because if I, that would have been brought up at the time, that could have been resolved and that would have never been on the report. And on top of that, whenever they first walked in, I actually, and this was my dad's idea, we put together just a little one page document and it had what we failed on and why. And then beneath it, I put how we fixed it. So they had a one page reference document as soon as they walked <laughs> through that door and they could see, oh, okay, he, the knife sterilizer, we said it was inoperable. Actually, it just needed to be plugged in and it's already plugged in and ready to go. So it laid out all those things.
And then, of course, whenever we did the walkthrough, it was really easy for them to verify. Oh, yeah, look at that. They said they did that. Look at that. They did do That's that. That's awesome. <laughs> so simple, right? But it's so effective. Yeah. Yep. And a lot, you know, the, uh, this took a lot of, again, you had to pull your own emotions out of it. Because if uh, if we had got emotional about it and got angry and stuff like that, that's that you lose instantly whenever you do that, and it can be really hard. But you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to go at this logically, and you have to basically give them enough rope that they get in trouble into trouble on their own. Because it is the law, and, and a lot of people don't understand the law. The law is the law. There's representatives of the law. There's enforcers of the law. But a lot of times you really, if you understand what you're doing as much as you do, because you've put a lot of education, a lot of time into that education, you in a weird way that's very powerful for the civilian, for us, the common folk, for everybody that's trying to do what you were doing in maybe different levels of life, but you become the rule of law because you put a lot of intentional time into that, which is very important for people to understand just because people have titles, just because they are a representative of, of the state doesn't mean they're the rule of law. You can be the rule of law and you can do it exactly how you basically just experienced in your life that you're never going to forget for one. But one thing that I see is that, you know, we spoke of earlier is that you're going to, you're going to make some changes here. And whenever you were going through that process, you know, I, I was telling my family, I was talking to, you know, parents and, you know, just people that I know. And it was kind of being hush about it because everybody was rooting you on. But everybody I, I spoke with that first time I said, man, he, he didn't pass. They, 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 they failed Justin and we're trying to figure out why. Every one of them felt, felt your pain because we know the skin in the game here. It is your livelihood. And you've been here, you know, your whole life. And just the investment you put into your community is priceless. And there's roadblocks out there, but there's solutions and you're part of that solution. So that's pretty cool. Well, and I highly encourage people if the thing is, is if you know that you've done a good job and you know, you've done your research and you know, like in our case, we knew we built a very solid facility. We knew we built a facility that we could very, very reasonably do the whole processing facility and do it in a very safe way. I knew after that first inspection, after I did some more leg uh, work with the HACCP stuff and actually talked to an inspector from Arizona and actually a, a guy that we knew that does HACCP for a lot of really big plants, I knew that my HACCP plan was solid. Um, you know, of course they can make recommendations, but I knew the core of it was solid. So whenever you know that whatever you're having to go in and defend is solid, it makes your job way easier because at that point I knew, okay, all this is solid. So at that point I was going to turn it on them and say, if we're not passing, you need to show me why we're not passing. You need to make the case as far as why we are failing. It's not the other way around. That's so true. You, you have to force that person that is judging you, that has the authority to judge on you. They have to take ownership. It's just not, enforcement but then enforcement and then ownership 
and they have to explain whenever you have to explain your stance, when you have to explain your accusation of um, failing or false, whatever, you know, you want to call that, you know, ownership is something that is not done by them. Usually on that side of the, the coin ownership is dictated by the person that is being judged. And you only can do that if you know what the hell you're doing. So, well, and so the the second inspection, you know, was a completely different beast. It was actually 180 degree different. But the thing is, is as soon as they pulled up, I knew it was going to be different because that head inspector from the first time walked out with another one of the, the, the another guy that came. But the other guy that stepped out, he was in completely in slacks, a nice dress shirt. And I knew that he was probably that higher up boss. And sure enough, it turned out he was. And so I had all these things ready to go, you know, and I was ready to basically be on the fight about, okay, I need to put the pressure on them. However, whenever he came through that door, and of course, you know, I gave them that one page, you know, little handout that talked about the things that we've done. Um, He actually gave about a 15 minute speech to start with like I said, about how important these little facilities, a facility that's processor and producer owned is, about how he'd want this kind of facility to be a model, about, you know, he only had just really glowing things to say about small businesses like this. So at that point, I kind of figured we were going to pass. And then the second inspection was 180 degrees different. On top of that main inspector and his other guy were suddenly extremely friendly, they were looking us in the eye. They were talking to us. They were shaking your hand. Anything that they didn't exactly like, they would say, hey, it would actually be better if you did it this way, which, of course, is great. That's that's what I was hoping to get on the first inspection, because if we need to make changes, that's fine. But by all means, tell us, hey, you need to make this change because of this. And, and here's what we think would work best, because at that point, then we're working together. We're both working towards the goal of well, you're, safety. You're, you're working, which is well, exactly you're what we're working want. towards the truth that should be known by both sides. I mean, that's the balance of our reality of life. Is if you're if you can get to where you know what truth is in the the dictation of the law, then and you you make them work for the truth. You don't have to do anything else except you know basically spell it out. And this is the truth. And so let's get there. Yep. And, you know, I love that approach on everything. A lot of wisdom in that, you know, your father and you working together. Um, Let's let's talk about because we're going to come back to this. This is just the first little. we're going to have the stages of the processing uh, experience in the state of Texas. We've been waiting for this moment for a long time. Let's talk about this year in 2022 and let's talk about your roadmap because whenever those cars drove off the other day you you were pretty happy i'm sure you had a smile on your face what that smile on your face probably (laughs) allowed you to do such as emotions in life and how we we approach decision making based on these emotions what did you allow yourself to do start thinking because there for almost a month you weren't thinking anything except past this inspection what is justin thinking about for 2022 as far as your family as far as your business let's talk about some conferences you might speak at and let's go from there 
Well, I mean, like you said, it was pretty major. And honestly, I think it's still kind of sinking in because it's still a little bit surreal because we did have to fight so hard for it. But it helped that uh, Friday we got to um, actually get some animals in there and and start that whole processing process. So we got to kill uh, five, four beef and get them up in the cooler and and you know a lot of that was us wanting to try out our system and get the kinks worked out because all of your systems are always going to have a kink and it's just you need to be able to get in there and get that process going so it was pretty great to be able to do that and uh, as i mentioned you know once this other paperwork comes in we'll really be able to kind of be off to the races but as far as uh, my farm goes you know the biggest kind of roadblock or bottleneck that i've I've always ever had is that I couldn't get animals processed or it would be months out and it would be very limited spots. And so now, like as, as I'm sitting here and and as I've been thinking about things, you know, in, in the past few days, you know, as far as my, even just my pig herd goes, I've got about 20 to 30 animals that need to be processed. Now about half of those are coal animals that I don't like for various reasons Um, that are probably mainly going to be pork sausage. But whenever it comes down to beforehand, if I only had four spots, I could either fill those with four premium animals or I could fill them with four coals that weren't going to bring the premium. And at that point, you have no choice. You have to fill those slots with four premium animals. Now, that's not going to be the case. So I'm actually going to be able to improve the quality of my herds and be able to provide really high quality meat at the same time. Because again, now we control this whole process. We're able to take these animals in, process them like they need to be processed um, in, in, a, in a careful and safe manner and in a very high quality manner where we're getting the most best cuts we can from every animal that comes through here. We're not going to be flipping about the way that we cut up these animals. We're going to be looking for the highest quality every single time. So that that's, well, that's, that's a huge difference. Well, it's everything difference. about our nutrition, isn't it? I mean, you guys get to put more low time preference in the quality of that protein. That's it right there. You're not being dictated to by, hey, can I process these animals this month or, you know, four months out? And that becomes, that becomes the target. That becomes the intention instead of the intention being, this needs to be the best quality protein that I can produce for my, my customers. Right. And so that'll allow me to, to be able to pursue that heavily. And so then I'll be able to actually, focus on upping my animal production as opposed to what the focus has always been previously which is how in the world am i going to get these animals processed you know of course selling is is a focus but uh especially with what i have right now i've been very blessed in in the the times that i actually had you know that pork and that lamb and that kind of stuff i would sell out very quickly because again it was a very limited quantity so i'm going to be looking to be able to fix that and get that rolling and so this year we're going to be really focusing on the quality of those herds the quality of those animals being able to improve that because we are able to now manage our herds like we need to um and then we'll be able to look at 
goodness. Um, actually looking to get our own land, um, you know, maybe not this year, but at least start that process. Cause you know, that sure. takes a little bit of time. Um, and, and then once we are able to do that, then I can really focus on not only, um, improving my herd qualities, but also managing, you know, whatever plot of land I get, like it needs to be managed, focusing on being a grass farmer, um, which improves the health of every everything involved from the animal to the person who eats the animal um, and really then be able to uh, pursue everything involved with that which includes you know looking at helping people get these facilities up um, i think that there's a huge potential not only for producers but somebody that wants mm -hmm. to be a butcher somebody that wants to just sell high quality local proteins there's all sorts of, cause you don't necessarily have to be all three. There's a lot of room for specialization. Well, I don't think a lot of people realize that as far as the, you know, all the varieties out there and how you can really, you know, maybe not when we grew up, when our parents grew up, you know, there was the, the local butcher, the butcher was the butcher. And so, you know, you processor, there's a lot of stuff that I think, you know, when you and I start working together on this processing aspect in the state of Texas, there's a lot of avenues and business models and everything that we're going to kind of discover and, you know, we're going to be able to bring out there. And that's going to be the fun part because I talked with Will Harris the other day with White Oak Pastures and he was talking about processing and he brought up a good, a good point. And it's something that with this variety that we just spoke of as far as processing the the animal be it a butcher or be it somebody like you there's still going to be a problem here and the big problem that a lot of people on a bigger scale of course not local because everybody local here is going to be eating your beef and we're going to because we know you we we're friends with you and everything market access once we have processors is going to be something that nobody sees right now because of the scale. And we'll just focus on Texas once again. Once we do have these processing centers, we need to start the discussion of market access to the right, to anybody that wants to have this pure animal protein. We can scream from the rooftops right now about processing centers, processing centers and everything, market access. Um, and, and I think with your type of networking from food sheds to how, you know, the local food groups, everybody that you, once again, you're creating a market, not only for the processing, but now for market access to. Yep. Right. So it's, you know, it'll be pretty big. And then as far as any conferences that I'll be at, I know for sure um, on the 28th, let's see. Yeah, I think the 28th of February, uh, we have a, a little food producers conference up in mm -hmm. Spearman, Texas uh, for the Ogallala Commons. And so we're going to have a meat panel um, for that day as well on that. And then um, I know that Judith talked about uh, the Farm Ranch Freedom Alliance conference, but I can't remember offhand when that is sometime in the late spring, if I remember right, but I'd, I'd like to be at that if, where did, if they're still, yeah, where do they that usually kind of have so. that? Uh, normally somewhere in South yeah, or central down, Texas. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's not up here in the panhandle. <laughs> <laughs> 
No. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Definitely not. Well, there's going to be a lot of stuff. You know, I'm I'm going to start hopefully doing some speaking here as well. And, you know, with your, your guidance and everything, maybe I can come along with you on a few of these and start introducing the, you know, the beef initiative to everybody that you know, because I really want to, you know, build out that network because it's going to be very effective to do this. Yep. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to talk to more and more ranchers or in farmers and producers, uh, suppliers, people are re- reaching out. So the conversation is starting. And so it's pretty exciting uh, as far as what we're doing in just to plug what we're doing with the beef initiative, because we're about to launch that, pro- uh, the platform that, you know, I told you about, we're going to try well we know for a fact we're having two conferences one in kerrville texas and that's going to be on april 23rd we're going to have speakers we're going to represent from the animal protein industry from health to financial um bitcoin and so we're putting these conferences together to where we're going to bring a lot of different people into the mix from health and nutrition to finances the bankers to the Bitcoin, to the, 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 the farmers ranch. It's, it's going to be pretty cool. And then we have another one we're going to do in uh, Colorado in Crawford, Colorado at a, uh, Jason rich uh, farms. And he's out there in that part of Colorado is really beautiful. So that'll be kind of a hands-on. This is what a, you know, this is what a farm looks like. This is, you know, this is how we do this. And he's got some access to some really good land. So we're going to do some conferences. We're going to do some speaking. So we brought up this said nobody's going to come to uh, the the Texas panhandle. Well, you and I are going to put up some type of conference up here. We're going to show them that we can, uh, we can put on a pretty good conference. What do you say? Oh yeah. Well, you know, generally, at least with the OCs, uh, conferences, you know, with the one up in Spearman, we got people coming from Kansas and Oklahoma and even New Mexico on that one. So, so the thing is, is the Texas panel was right in the middle of all well, those other it states. Is. It's a tri-state area. We've got interstates running north and south. Everybody, if you go skiing from down south, you're going to go through, you know, the part of the panhandle. We know that. <laughs> so we can pull it off. I mean, and there, we've got the second largest canyon oh, yeah. here, we, you know, next to the Grand Canyon. We're not metro, but we, we've got a lot of history here. And you and I always talk about history and in how we like to discuss it. And I brought up the Comanches and the Texas Rangers. And um, it, you know, it, it makes me think about, you know, I grew up two, I guess, two blocks away from the Plains Museum there in Canyon. And people don't realize how that's a pretty solid museum for the whole Plains of Texas. And yep. if, you, if you tie into that, it's called, what is it? It's a, it's a Panhandle Plains Museum and it's in Canyon, Texas. But you want to start talking about in looking at grasslands and you want to look at, you know, bison and in the, the herds that came through this area, you paint a picture of what it looked like, you think, in like the 1850s in Texas. Well, up here, there wouldn't have been anything, but you also would have had streams and there would have been springs 
um, which if, if you're familiar with the paint handle now, um, that's pretty much unheard of. The only, about the only water source we have on the surface now is the Canadian river. And that's, um, mostly a trickle. Thanks to New Mexico. Uh, yeah. Thanks you know, to New the Mexico. Part, they hold water back yeah. from Texas. It's one thing they have on us. <laughs> But there used to be, you know, there used to be tons of little, little streams like the Tierra Blanca that, w that goes through Canyon right there. That used to be a nice little oh, sure. river, you know, and there were lots of them like that, but they were also spring fed. And that was before um, overgrazing. That was before lots of the invasive um, species um, that follow a lot of times the overgrazing. Um, and those bison also would have had a massive impact on that because again, you know, those are keystone species type animals. And so whenever, uh, say a small herd of bison of a couple of thousand animals would walk through an area, you talk about a, what would have looked like a decimated area between all the trampling and grazing and manure and urine that would be dropped. That, that would be a very different landscape because if you were to roll up on an area like that you'd think oh man what in the world is going on here but then of course if you visited that same area six months from then it looked completely different so that the the ecosystem that it would it would have been on a whole different scale a whole different cycle compared to what we're we're used to now yeah in those tributaries those small streams and everything you, you still see them here they're just dried up <laughs> and uh yep yeah, you can yep, see where, where they, they used, used to be. be and the water sources around here. We do, we, we do get a flash flood, you know, and uh, those are pretty, pretty interesting to watch and kind of transpire. Um, one thing that we're going to try to do, and this is kind of just hinting out there within the beef initiative, we're going to probably start investing in cattle this year as well. And it's going to be fun. Um, you and I talking this year because, uh, you know, you're going to start looking for land here in the Texas Panhandle, uh, go through the process of, you know, acquiring that land. That's going to be, you know, that, that's something that people want to hear as well, because we have a lot of people wanting to just have land. We know that they don't know where to start and having these conversations with you, you know, I want you to know that people really do value this. There's a lot of quality. Um, I want to maintain like you and I have developed some really good integrity and we have a very good vision of what we're trying to accomplish. And so um, we're not going to go too long tonight because we're going to have several more of these discussions mm -hmm. like we promised everybody. Um, and we're going to continue this as far as, you know, you getting through this first month, uh, how it's flowing and what problems you might see. And then, you know, how we're going to help educate everybody on this processing, because you and I are going to work really close on this so we can get that information in a way that is deliverable, that people know where they can come to get it, you know, in, in everything. As far as uh, beef and you and I, do I finally get my half a cow if I want it? <laughs> yeah yeah because we can get you on the list and um the nice thing with custom animals is as long as that animal is completely sold before mm. it's go it goes into the facility as long as i can put your name and somebody else's name on that other half then that animal can be done under the custom exempt 
uh, clause and and we we'll can talk get about that. So. We'll, we'll, that's some good value. That's that's a good place to start whenever you're buying a cow. There's so many different ways you can do it from somebody like you, a local processor. So right now, if I wanted to buy a cow and you just said, you know, if I can put my name on it, let's go through that process. Yeah, well, um, the nice thing is if if you are set up where you can sell the halves and quarters and that kind of thing, you actually don't even necessarily have to have a state inspected facility as long as that's the only thing you're doing, as long as you're not selling the individual retail cuts. Um, if, if that's all you're doing, then um, really it can actually be any number of people's names on that animal. So generally I try to stick with quarters halves and holes whenever you're talking about using that custom exempt uh, clause but technically you could have 20 or 40 people's sure. name on a single animal but the thing is is you're selling that live animal so you can still use the weight that they yield you know as far as how much meat that they give but that and that live animal is technically sold before it comes to the facility so unlike the animals that we're going to send through the state inspected, which would have tier balloon, as far sure. as the, the owner name goes, the custom animals, it would be Texas slim and whoever else, whether it's another half or two quarters or, you know, whoever it would have two to four to six names on there. And so then at that point, that animal, whenever it comes into the processing facility is owned by sure. y'all. And so then you're able to do that without all that extra oversight, which is a really um, underutilized, unfortunately, uh, well, law here in Texas. Well, we're going to bring this law to everybody in the state of Texas. We're going to yell it pretty, pretty loud because talk about, you know, a, a shorter path to, to food security and protein security. You know, that that's it. So, um, you know, to give you more plugs because we talked about mostly cattle. You brought up hogs. So I'm going to be buying my hogs from you. I'm going to be buying my lamb from you. I'm going to be buying my beef from you and I'm going to be buying my poultry from you. What else am I going to be buying? Is that it? Right. <laughs> uh, yep. That's it for now. Uh, someday I'd really love to get into a little sure. bit of bison production. Uh, but that'll have to be farther down the road. But actually, our facility can do you can bison. Can do bison so. in your facility? Wow, that's that's pretty big. Mm -hmm. um, how how are the employees that you got to hire? Because you, you know you you hired some quality people that kind of know what they're doing. Is everybody kind of happy now? You got a good rapport with everybody. He's tired of waiting and ready to go to work, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, tomorrow will be the first day that we have. Um, actually, we only we're only able to make, uh, hold really? on to one person because of yeah. that the delay. But um, really, that's not necessarily the end of the world because the thing is, is you have to remember too that our facility is so different. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that uh, meat cutting experience is what we should be hiring on. It would be nice, but the thing is, is if you have meat cutting experience, you could have bad habits that follow right. that as well. Because the way that we're going to be cutting and the amount of time we're going to be taking is extremely, extremely different compared to most facilities. And so if you can't change to that, it is almost better to start with somebody who has no oh, experience that we can train right. So it, it'll be an interesting, you know, it's going to be an interesting balancing act for us because you have to find people even if they if they have experience, they have to be willing to 
do it like we mm. need it done. There's just not going to be any any room for not doing it like so we need it done. How many people are you going to be hiring? Uh, probably once we really get going, we'll be employing between four cutters, to six people. Basically, or is that going to be emphasized for the cutters, or is it going to be versatile? Uh, that'll be uh, okay. Uh, everybody, um, because the thing is, is as small as our facility is, we're not just going to be hiring. And that's another thing that kind of unfortunately comes with a lot of the meat cutters that have experience is they they might have ten years of experience, but they only have ten years of experience doing one very right. niche cutting. Whereas our facility, if we if you were to work for us, you're going to be involved in the killing process, handling the animals whenever they're alive talking to customers, doing the cutting, doing the packaging. So everything. Everything well, along about the way. To, you're about to. So we're, we no, don't, have, don't have any room for, for uh, rent seekers. You basically are going to get something. You're going to bring no. artisanship back into meat cutting. Um, for There's a lot of people out there that are aspiring to do exactly what you're talking about. So I'm sure I'm going to have some people like messaging me saying, hey, can I talk to Justin? I, I'm really cool. I'll, I'll work for um, almost for free. Teach me. You're going to have a lot of that. You have a lot of young, especially young people right now. They're getting involved. And, you know, this is this is going to be interesting mm -hmm. to see how this transpires because, you know, I've met some people that used to be butchers that they kind of had to get out of it and I, they didn't want to get out of it. So there's there's a lot to um, unpack here that I mean, we're 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 going to be able to talk all year. So, you know, this is this is going to be fun. Mm -hmm. And um Congratulations, Justin, and let everybody know where they can see you. We, you've been quiet on, of course, Twitter because you've been so dang busy, but let everybody know once again <laughs> how they can reach out to you. Uh, a lot of people love everything that you say. I get a lot of compliments on you, so you need to hear that as well. So let us know how we can get a hold of you. Um, people are going to want to buy beef from you too, so let's let them you know, have a communication with you to where you can answer their questions. You know, maybe they're driving through if they want to buy something from yep. you. Well, the easiest way, if you search Tierloon Farm, um, it'll pull up all our social media. So we have Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter as well. Uh, the Twitter doesn't have a lot on there, but you can always reach me on there regardless. Um, it's just one of those things. Again, it's new. And like you said, sure. I just haven't had the time. I really haven't had the time for any of the social media. You'll see that my I've made some posts, but uh, I've made more posts the last three days than I have right. probably in the well, last three months. I'm so. going to help you out now because I haven't been doing uh, I, I wanted to keep you quiet because I knew you were going through so much crap. So you got me working for you now. Uh, spell uh, Tear Bloom. So that's T-I-R and then B-L-U-E-N. And you can even do tierbloon.com. That'll that'll take you to our website and All right. as well. Um, right now the you can't you you can't really order anything because I don't have stock on anything, but as soon as we get rolling with that state yeah, inspection, that'll be different. Well, so. whenever whenever you're full on, you're gonna tell me and I'm gonna I'm gonna release that information and I'll even do it on I'll do it on the podcast oh, yeah. and we'll make sure everybody knows. Uh, so you're gonna get busy. You're gonna sell out, which is good because we need food security. We need animal protein security. Everybody needs to start stacking up right now and get your animal protein 
plan for 2022. We've got food changes coming. We do have food supply shortages starting to kick in, just like we've talked with. How are you going to feed your kids protein moving here on forward? You better start thinking about it. Food intelligence is more important right now than we've ever seen it in my lifetime. And if this changes in ways that they want to change it, you're going to have less options. Beef will become like caviar and you will suffer. So so come out, reach out, say hi to me, Uh, reach out to Justin. And Justin, we're going to be continuing this conversation. God bless you. I appreciate you. I'm so glad that we're friends now and we'll be talking to you soon. Oh yeah. Well, I sure do appreciate you and all the work that you've been doing because that'll make a big difference. Justin, you have a good night. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you everybody. Thank everybody. We will be talking to you just within a couple of days. Be good. And we'll see you later. Here at the Beef Initiative, we encourage all you ranchers out there to tell us who and where you are so we can let everybody know they're looking for you. This time I'm shouting out KNC Cattle out of Austin, Texas. KNCCattle.com. Cole, he's a fourth generational Texas rancher. He knows what he's doing.